If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12. Today we celebrate the beginning of Holy Week. It is the time when Jesus has entered into Jerusalem and he is going forward to his death. He was hailed initially as a king, but the week will not end with him being paraded as a king. It will end with him being crucified as a false king, although he is not. We know that he is the one who stands above all time and space, and he is the king of all nations. There are some immensely important events during this week. There are challenges to Jesus' authority. There are important parables and teaching moments from Jesus himself. Even the reversal of Jesus being nailed to the cross after being initially hailed as the coming Davidic king. There is one thing, however, that frames all of this. There is one thing that gives the majority of the historical and theological background for what Jesus is about to do. Knowing that he is going to his death, knowing that he has returned to Jerusalem for the last time, and that is that it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus didn't pick a random week to return to Jerusalem. This was not just happenstance that he happened to end up in Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was purposeful and it was meaningful. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, was the remembrance of the Passover. And so we've come today to study through what the Passover was and what it means we are going to take a break from our Deuteronomy study for a couple of weeks. Uh, today, obviously, we're, we're going to be in Exodus 12. We are going to talk about the resurrection next week, but we will be coming back uh, to our study through Deuteronomy in a couple of weeks. But interestingly, simply through the providence of God, not only in my tinkering with the way that we're going to outlay the sermons, we have a number of reaffirmations of the Lord's Supper of Passover coming to us week after week after week. Not only did we celebrate the Lord's Supper last week, but we are talking about the Passover, which the Lord himself will make into the Lord's Supper in the Gospels. But in several weeks, when we come back to Deuteronomy, we're going to be talking about the Sabbath and the Passover, as we will find even today, is sort of built into the meaning of the Sabbath. Certainly any time that we talk about the Passover, it's complicated. You can, you can liken how the Bible talks about the Passover to a, a symphony with major movements within the symphony. There's at least four major movements of the Passover within Scripture. They're similar in two different parts. There is an action and there is a remembrance. Then there is a different action and there is a new remembrance. The first action is the Passover that happens in Egypt as God will commit judgment upon the firstborn of all sons, but he will pass over those who put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. There is then the remembrance of the Passover in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is a week-long festival, a week-long feast to remember the Passover by. There is then a new and separate action, not only when Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, but when he goes to the cross and is resurrected again, when he gives his body and his blood for the redemption of many. He reinterprets the meaning of the Passover. And then, of course, we remember that meaning of the Passover when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because of these major movements, it can be difficult to actually sit down and think through what the Passover is. 
The Old Testament is kind to us in that it gives us very concrete passages to study. We can study Exodus 12 and 13, Leviticus 23, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy 15, and all of the teaching about the Passover and the feast that we need is collected there. But because the centrality of the meaning of the Passover is placed fully upon the cross of Jesus Christ, the New Testament talks about it everywhere, everywhere. So when we are trying to determine what the meaning of the Passover is for us, when it comes to the New Testament, it is almost impossible to settle down in one passage. And so we will be sort of flying around the New Testament uh, later on this morning, but we will settle ourselves first in Exodus chapter 12. Certainly when we come to Exodus chapter 12, the backstory of the Passover in Exodus needs to sort of be filled in. And to do that, we're going to step back quite a ways, all the way back to Joseph. Joseph, who, was ang- who angered his brothers by being both proud and stupid, was sold by his brothers wrongly into slavery in Egypt. And what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. As Joseph was taken down into slavery in Egypt, things both unfortunate and fortunate happens to him. And over the course of time, God does this kind thing in placing him second only to Pharaoh. The reason for this is because Pharaoh has a dream. And in that dream, there are seven skinny cows and then seven, or excuse me, seven fat cows and then seven skinny cows. And Pharaoh doesn't understand this. And Joseph says, hey, this is famine and feast. The the seven fat cows are feast, but the, the skinny cows, the decrepit cows that come up and eat them will be famine. And he says, okay, because you are clearly capable and understanding, I'm gonna put you in charge of all of my nation. Ironically, what Joseph then does in putting all of the grain away is make Egypt immensely wealthy. They were the nation that had the blessing of God upon them, not unmistakingly because he blessed Joseph. As Pharaoh blesses Joseph, blessing comes upon the people of Egypt. The one whom you bless, who blesses you, he told to Abraham, I will bless. We see this played out in Egypt. But eventually, Eventually, even after the nation of, or the, the family of Israel is reunited, the brothers come down into Egypt, they gather there, they will live there to live out the famine. There arises in the beginning of the book of Exodus, a Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. And he puts the people of Israel under hard slavery. And he does this for a couple of reasons. One, politically, they are not Egyptians. And he is afraid if if. If a foreign nation attacks us, what is to keep this multitude of people from rising up and attacking us? So we are going to oppress them. We are going to to make sure that they lack the ability to gain enough population or to gain strength. And we are going to keep them busy with slavery. And more than that, we're going to start killing the male children. He tells the midwives, you are to kill the male children when they come out. If it's a female, go ahead, let it live. They can still do work, but men can yield swords. So you're to put them to death. Eventually, one of those male children that should be put to death is Moses, who would come back later in his life, much later in his life, and would walk up to Pharaoh, who he no doubt knew as a child because he was raised in Pharaoh's household, and he would look at him and he would say, you are to let my people go. Pharaoh will, of course, accept that offer and refuse that offer many times over the the preceding chapters. The miracles then that God will perform. He has provided Joseph to Egypt in order to make Egypt powerful and then he provides Moses to Egypt to tear Egypt down. 
and he will perform miracles before them. And the miracles follow a very interesting pattern, and it's something that's important for us. First, Moses shows up, and he does two miracles off the bat. The first one, that he turns the Nile to blood, and secondly, that he multiplies frogs upon the land. So that frogs are everywhere. You cannot lay down in bed. You can't cook. Frogs are all over you everywhere, which seems more funny than horrible. But frankly, I think if we had to live through that, we would probably start to turn toward more horrible, if nothing else, for the stink of the frogs. However, the magicians, there's two things that are important about these first two. The magicians of Egypt are perfectly well capable of doing the miracles themselves. They perform the miracles directly after Moses does. Moses turns the Nile to water. The magicians turn around and show that they too can do this. Moses multiplies the frogs on the land. The magicians themselves turn around and show that they can do this. And both, both miracles affect all of Egypt. But on the third miracle, we have a turning point. Moses strikes his staff on the ground and the dirt dirt of the ground becomes gnats. And gnats spread everywhere throughout Egypt. And this time, while the gnats do affect all of Egypt, the magicians themselves can no longer do the miracles. God is outpacing them. He is stronger than their gods. He is stronger than their magicians. And they cannot multiply the gnats as Moses did. And then for the remainder of the miracles, for the flies, the livestock killing, uh, livestock death, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, all of these no longer affect all of Egypt, but they only affect Egypt outside of Goshen. Goshen, the land where the Israelites live. God is now so mighty and powerful that not only can the gods of Egypt not match him, but he will perform miracles in such a way that it separates out his people from everyone else. Darkness will fall upon the land, but not upon Goshen. Livestock everywhere will die, but not in Goshen. Hail will fall everywhere in the land, but not in Goshen. That is when we come up to the 10th plague. Being the last plague, it highlights all of the other plagues. It makes poignant all of the other plagues, and it intensifies them in a very real way. It is likely that the remembrance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was also a reminder of the rest of the plagues, of all of God's deliverance from the people of Israel, as is highlighted in Exodus 13, verse 8. When you remember this day, he says, On that day, explain to your son, this remembrance, this Feast of Unleavened Bread, is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It is to remember all of the plagues in one plague. What then? Are the themes of the Passover, what is the importance of the Passover, and what can we learn from them? Let us read Exodus 12, verses 1 through 28. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire, 
with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head and its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses for anyone, if anyone eats what is leavened. From the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, therefore, you shall observe this day throughout all your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner in the, or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Israel and Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, they did so. What can we take? As far as the meaning of the Passover, what can we say about it? First, the Passover means deliverance. Passover means deliverance. The fact that the Bible here speaks of the deliverance of the people of Israel means out of necessity that they are being delivered from something. There is judgment happening here. And judgment and deliverance always go hand in hand. Further, you'll notice that that pattern that we talked about is broken here. And it's broken in a very slight but very significant way. 
You see, the former judgments of the plagues, two, three, happened upon all of the people in Egypt, the Israelites and the Egyptians the same, but from four on, those plagues did not affect the people of Israel, and they had nothing to do with it. They didn't have to perform any act. They didn't have to ask for anything from God. God simply said, I will strike all the livestock, but the livestock in Goshen I will not strike because my people Israel dwell there. But now, now, that pattern is broken. For the first time, the people actually need to act. They actually need to do something. They have to go and kill the lamb. They have to put the blood on the doorposts. The implication being, if you don't, you too will lose your firstborn. This is no small thing for God to say that he will kill all of the firstborn. Back in chapter 4, when Moses is first called by God, Moses is trying to give every excuse that he can possibly think of for a reason not to go into the promised land, for him not to be the one who is sent. But God overcomes all those and he tells him to go. And he tells Moses precisely what he will say. And verses 21 and 22 of chapter 4 says this, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says, to, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is his firstborn son. He says, I will go into the land and I will strike all of the firstborn sons and I will destroy them unless you put blood on the doorpost and lentil. The judgment was not just a judgment over Israel, or excuse me, over Egypt, but over all the people in the land. The judgment was for everyone. No one was to escape this judgment unless, unless God himself delivered them. You even get the sense that God is allowing it, but there's two players here. There's two things going on. Notice what he says in chapter 12. In verse 23, he says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. The Lord will do this. And when he sees the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter and to claim your lives. God will prevent this from happening only because he sees the blood. The judgment that exists is not just for the, the Egyptians. It is for everyone in the land. But God is making a way for them to be delivered from it. He will save his firstborn son just as they save their firstborn son. Second, the Passover means comfort for the people of God. It means comfort for the people of God but not in the way we think of comfort. It's interesting that as we read the memorial service and the memorial feast that God keeps for his people, there are really important parts of the Passover that are not included in the memorial feast, which is really odd. If we were to talk collectively and we were to take a vote, not that God cares about this, but we're democratic, so we'll vote. If we were to ask everyone, what is the most important part of the Passover? We would undoubtedly say not only the killing of the lamb, but specifically for the actual evening of the Passover, we would say the applying of the blood to the doorposts and the lintel, because that, that is what makes God pass over. It is really interesting then that that is one thing that is not included in the remembrance. As a matter of fact, the remembrance isn't even just called the Passover. The remembrance is literally called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which includes the Passover. Why? Why is the unleavened bread so important? 
time and time again, he talks about if you eat leaven, you're out. If you look at keeping leaven in your house, you're out. If you accidentally put leaven in your mouth, you're gone. I will destroy you from amidst my people. That seems worse, frankly, than the judgment on the firstborn son. Why does he care so much about the leavened bread? Simply put, leavened bread was better, right? We know this. That's why we don't eat unleavened bread. We eat leavened bread because it tastes better. It's, it's the same thing as drinking flat pop. We don't drink flat pop. Some psychos probably do, but for the rest of us, we rightly drink carbonated beverages, right? And the reason why we drink carbonated beverages is because they taste better. If you've ever opened, like put a can of pop in the fridge, when you get it back out, you know that thing's going to taste horrible. You might as well have just drank five ounces and thrown the thing away, right? So we do it because the air in the pop makes it taste better. Air in bread makes it taste better. The whole point of putting leaven in bread is to make it taste better. It's more comforting for people. but God does not allow them. Now, during the Passover, the clear and obvious reason is simply haste. It's simply haste. You you can't wait for the leaven to work through the bread. You are going to leave. There is sort of an instantaneous thing about all of this. There is a great deal of haste. How are you supposed to eat it? He says, you eat it with your belt fast and your sandal on your feet and your staff in your hand. This is the, the ancient Israel equivalent of you're eating your breakfast in the car, let's go, right? You, you are to have everything you need to be ready to leave on an instant's notice. There is no time to wait around. You are going to go out in the desert, but God knows very well that Pharaoh will not be far behind. His heart might be softened after his son dies, but his heart will be hardened again. You need to get going. You need to have bread with you. And to have that bread with you, you can't build kilns along the way. You need to go. But why in the memorial? There's no more haste. They have the land. They dwell in their own houses. They're not being driven out. The Egyptians are not coming in. Why focus on the leaven? It's not for nothing that in chapter 14, we have the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt They're running through the Red Sea and then the destruction of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Chapter 15, the entirety of chapter 15, is nothing but a song and poetry that is raised up before God because of the deliverance that he just gave them. They are literally newly minted nation. They have come out of this great deliverance of Egypt. 14 and 15 sing of the praises of God and then chapter 16 comes around and this is one of the first things we read in verse 3. And the people of Israel said to them, directly after they just finished singing praises to God for his deliverance, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. Literally, the first thing that comes out of their mouth after praising God is, man, it would have been great if we had died in Egypt because at least in Egypt we had bread to eat and at least in Egypt we had pots full of meat. We really can't treat the Israelites easy here, right? But at the same time, we understand this. We don't need to be in the South to understand what comfort food means, right? We have comfort food. We live based off of comfort food. They're looking for bread to be comforted by the fact that they're no longer 
in Egypt, they're out in the wilderness. And what God is doing by saying you are only to eat unleavened bread is to remind them that you cannot go back to Egypt. You had to leave it in haste. You had to flee from Egypt. And there are times when God provides you with things that are not comforting for you to give you better things down the road. It is an ever-present reminder to the people of Israel that what God wants to give you as far as difficulties will always become better for you in the end. It is a reminder that sometimes, while the unleavened bread might be good for your stomach, it is bad for your soul. Continually throughout the desert wanderings, the people longed to go back to Egypt. They longed to go back to slavery. They longed to go back to not being a nation so that they could be comforted. By God allowing and making the people continually eat unleavened bread, he is reminding them that there is a comfort that is more important than what the world can provide for you. There's a comfort more important than food for you. Sarah Groves, uh, who is a Christian artist, sings a song called Painting Pictures of Egypt. The refrain goes like this. I've been painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out what it lacked. Because the future seems so hard, and I want to go back. But the places that used to fit me cannot hold the things I've learned. Those roads were closed off to me while my back was turned. It's a really good picture of what the Israelites were doing. They were, in their minds, thinking of everything that Egypt was, but not painting it correctly. They were leaving out all of the good things that God was going to give them. And so he reminds them and reminds them and reminds them. The leaven keeps the people in Egypt. If they used leaven during the Passover, they would never have gotten out. It is a reminder of the good things they had in captivity But freedom, the full and final freedom that God promises, must come with suffering. The unleavened bread is a reminder of that. Third, there is creation. There is creation. God not only starts the Passover by saying, this is now the new year for you. I don't care how you did your calendars before. This month is the first month for you from now on. There is newness here. Moreover, it's not just the start of a new year, but they are now officially a new nation. As long, as long as they were held under slavery in Egypt, they will never, ever actually be a nation of people. They might be a multitude of people. They might be a lot of people, but they would still be Egypt's people. They would never be themselves a nation. And when God begins to call them out, he begins to make them a new nation. What is more? What is more, and very importantly, this feast of unleavened bread is connected directly to the Sabbath. In Leviticus 23 and in Deuteronomy 15, as we're going to be talking about, it's clearly connected to the Sabbath. Even here, you can tell it's connected to the Sabbath. It is a momentary event. It is a one-night Passover. He doesn't pass them over seven times. He passes them over one time, but he says, when you remember it, you are to make it into a week. And that week is bookend with days of rest at the beginning and days of rest at the end. Exactly the way the Sabbath sounds like. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus 23 and in Deuteronomy 15, the Sabbath celebrations are lumped in with these festivals that last a week long. There's a reason why. What does the Sabbath indicate? It is God's creation of the world and then resting from his work. 
In other words, what he's saying here is this is the celebration of you becoming a nation. This is the celebration of my deliverance of you from Egypt and making you a people. There is creation going on here. And that, of course, is tied with number four, which must be rest. That God will give his people rest. The blood on the, excuse me, the aligning of the week with the Sabbath also, of course, included the fact that they were to rest. Both at the beginning of the week and at the end of the week, the people had to refrain from work. No doubt that the slavery that they were embonded to in Egypt was part of this rest. You guys don't have to work like that anymore. God mandates, as a matter of fact, that you cannot work like that. That is not God-honoring work, but you are to take a day off and you are to rest from your work. It is a forced rest. You are commanded to do this. Fifth, it is a sign. The blood on the doorpost was a sign, but again here we get something that's quite odd, I think. When we think of the blood on the doorpost and the lintel as a sign, we typically think of it as a sign for God. After all, God will pass by your house, and when he looks and he sees the blood, he will say, well, that's got some blood on it, so they've done what I've asked. I will pass over them, and I will deliver them from the destroyer. I will not allow the destroyer to enter and take the firstborn. But that is not precisely how Exodus puts it. It is not a sign for God. We would think that it is, but it's not just a sign for God at the very least but it is a sign for the people. Notice verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. It's not a sign for me. It's a sign for you. Imagine that you were the Israelites. This, this Moses character shows up and you're not too terribly fond of him at the first because everything he's doing seems to be turning around and being worse for you in the end. He shows up and all of a sudden your brick quota goes up and then you got to make bricks without straw and you're working all the time and the hardships are being pressed upon you. You don't like him. And then the miracles start to take effect and you know that it's Moses that is doing it and this God who is working with Moses is just incredibly powerful and he is destroying everything around you. You are seeing everything that you have ever known crumble around you. And then this God says, Here's the deal. I'm going to come and I'm going to take away every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Man and beast, you look and you look at your son and you know that your firstborn son is mine. What does God do? He doesn't say, if you believe. Now, there's no doubt that belief and faith, that what God was going to do is part of it. You don't put blood on your lintels unless you have some sort of faith that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. But he doesn't just say, you'll believe. Instead, what does he do? He gives them something to do so that they will have a symbol on their house. How do we know he will pass over us? We know because we put blood on our lintels and our doorposts. It is a sign for the people of Israel to give them confidence in the Lord, to give them trust in the Lord. Now, amazingly, when we come up to the New Testament, this feast, which is the central feast in, in many ways of the Old Testament, 
It is the central feast in the New Testament as well. The whole reason why Jerusalem is so terribly packed is because so many Jews flood back to Jerusalem for this particular feast. And Jesus not only meets with his disciples, but he takes them up to celebrate the Passover and he reinterprets the whole thing. He reinterprets, no longer is it deliverance from Egypt, no longer is it simply a Passover lamb, but he does everything new again. We'll read from Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, from this moment, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in my Father's kingdom with you. Stop for just a minute and understand how bold a move this is by Jesus. This is the celebration whereby God has delivered his people from Egypt. He is making them a nation. It is prior to the law, foundational for the people of Israel that they were pulled out of Egypt. If there was anything that showed that God was for his people, it was their deliverance from Egypt. Jesus is taking that central remembrance, that central feast that makes them a nation, that makes God their God, and he says, I'm going to tell you what it's actually about. It's about me. It's not about Israel being made. It's not about being delivered from Egypt. It's about me. It's about the breaking of my body and the shedding of my blood. This was either a great act of heresy and apostasy or the fullest possible unveiling of what God actually meant by the Passover. We clearly think that it's the latter. We believe that the Passover happened. We believe that the firstborn were actually in danger. We believe that the people actually did kill a lamb and that they actually did put blood on the doorpost and the lentil. We believe that the destroyer did go from house to house and on the houses where there was blood, he passed over it. We believe that. But that, even in its realness, is nothing but a metaphor. Nothing but a metaphor for what Christ would do. And in reinterpreting that Passover feast, he reinterprets all of the main themes of the Exodus or of Exodus for us. First, deliverance. It's not clear who Jesus would be delivering us from, right? He says, this is now not about what happens in Egypt. It's about what happens to me. But what is Egypt being symbolized as? What is the the sort of slavery that you're being delivered from? We need to remember, again, that the judgment that was being placed on Egypt at that time was not just on the nation of Egypt, but it was on everyone. God was not sparing his people by not threatening them with judgment. No, he threatened them with judgment. But he said, you need to have blood to get out of it. Matthew's version of the Lord's Supper is incredibly clear. This is my blood, which is for what? Not physical deliverance from your ills, 
I'm not spilling my blood to make you happier. I'm not spilling my blood even to give you an example of the way you are to live. I'm spilling my blood primarily so that you may be forgiven for your sins. The judgment that is over you and what you are being delivered from, just like what Israel is being delivered from, is the wrath of God. Nothing less. Your sin puts you at enmity with God. And because Christ has given his blood for you, he becomes that sacrificial lamb. He becomes the reason why God will pass over you in judgment. He says, it is through my blood that forgiveness of sins is passed out. And if you have the blood placed upon you, if you take in the blood of Jesus Christ, that deliverance is true and real for you. God will pass you over in judgment. Secondly, comfort. Comfort. While much of the temptation to eating with haste today has come down to just how quickly can we get the celebration of the Lord's Supper over with. I was at a church with a good friend of mine. It was a very large church, so large, in fact, that they didn't even have like a local parking lot that if you tried to park there, it would be so long that they had satellite parking lots, not satellite churches, satellite parking lots. You would go there like you're going to a Lions game or something, get on a bus, and they would bus you to the church, drop you off, and then they'd bus you back. On the bus, my friend looked at me and he said, oh, I forgot to tell you, we're celebrating Lord's Supper today. This is church like 11, 13,000 people. The only thing he can think of saying to me is, don't worry, we do it really quickly. Okay. Whew. Good. Thank God for that, because I would hate for you to do it rightly. Right? I'd hate for this to be something of magnitude and importance for you to do, but I'm glad that you can skip out quickly through the Lord's Supper to get to your real meal at McDonald's later. Much of the way we think of the haste and the unleavened bread is simply because we're trying to do it quickly. But that's not really the reason for the remembrance of the unleavened bread. Notice the warnings of yeast in the New Testament there's a couple of main spots. One of the, the best one is Mark 8. In Mark 8, the very beginning of Mark 8, Jesus has fed 4,000 people miraculously. There were seven loaves of bread, and mysteriously, through his own power, he magna, um, multiplies them so that they are able to feed 4,000 people. This is already after he's already done the same thing for 5,000 people two chapters earlier. The Pharisees then have the gall to come up to him after he's multiplied seven loaves to feed 4,000 people and say, Swell, can you give us a sign? Like something that would help us to see the truthfulness of who you are. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign. It's an evil and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. He gets into a boat, and then this happens in 8, 14 through 21. They had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Imagine that, one loaf for 13 people. How will we manage? Then he commanded them, Jesus commanded them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. They were discussing amongst themselves that they did not have any bread. That's, that's not me. I looked up at you. That's not me saying that. That's literally scripture saying, after Jesus tells them, beware of the, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, they say, yeah, but man, bread would be really good. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing that you do not have any bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? 
Is your heart hardened? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces of bread did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of pieces of bread did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to him, don't you understand yet? Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he looks at his disciples and he says, you are worrying about the same thing. You are concerned with leaven. You are longing for comfort that you can't have. The Pharisees and Herod were very comfortable in the world. They didn't need a new world order. They needed to make sure that this very powerful man was going to help them and was going to do their bidding. That's why they came to test him. The disciples were not worried about keeping their place of authority. They were worried about filling their bellies. And he says, man, I just, just took seven pieces of bread, seven loaves of bread, and fed 4,000 people, and you were worried about this. They have needs, but they were looking for worldly provisions instead of God's. Leaven symbolizes going back by relying upon what the world can give you instead of what God will give you. God's comfort oftentimes comes in reminding you that he's got better things for you. His comfort is in reminding you that you will never find what you need in the world. It is a dry wasteland filled with salt water that will never, ever quench you. And at times, when you have nothing, it is so that you will want something better. Likewise, Warnings about leaven in Galatians 5.9 and 1 Corinthians 5.6-7 speak of leaving the world and its desires behind and pressing forward. You cannot act like you did before in sexual immorality and think that it's okay. You cannot be persuaded by the things that the world has to offer, thinking that by doing things yourself, you can make yourself acceptable to God. That's worldly thinking you have to pass on from that. You cannot be comforted by those things anymore. You are to be comforted in Christ alone. Third, creation. First Corinthians 5, 6, or 8 not only speaks of not acting like you did before, but also speaks of the Corinthians as being a new creation. They are given new life by the blood and the body of Jesus Christ because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. There is newness. This is nowhere seen better than in John 6, Verses 48 through 53, John, by the way, does not repeat the Lord's Supper during the Passover celebration at the end of his gospel. Instead, he has a foot-washing ceremony. But there's no doubt that John 6, in talking about body and in talking about blood, in talking about the provision of bread, is not somehow critiquing, or not critiquing, but providing an understanding of the Lord's Supper. And in John 6, 48 through 53, he says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And at that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Notice what he doesn't say. 
you're going to die. He doesn't say, if, if you don't take my body and you don't take my blood, death is coming for you. He says, no, you're already there. You are dead. But unless you take my body, unless you take my blood, there will never be life. But when you eat his body, when you drink his blood, there is life. There is newness. John calls this being born again. Paul says that you are a new creation. Paul talks about him being a new Adam, remaking everything. This is the creation of the Passover. Jesus is making all things new again. This world so centered around death, built on death, which works so hard and fervently to postpone death, can never give life. Christ's body and his blood, sacrificed like a lamb, promises life eternal, a life that is unlike the life that the world is able to give, a life that is nothing less than a new creation. Likewise, Christ gives his people rest. The rest that is promised in the Old Testament is very odd. You'll notice that they are commanded to rest. They're commanded. You have to rest. And that rest sounds like a broken record. It's every week. You work six days, rest, 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 rest. He continually charges them. You have to rest. It's a forced rest. But every week, they've got to start working again. And every week, they've got to be reminded to rest. There's no permanence there. The repetition of it time and time again, week after week and year after year, indicates that there is really no rest there. There's always Sunday morning, and there's always work to do. But Jesus, Jesus provides real and true rest for his people. In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are wearied and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. The book of Hebrews chapter 4 has the longest exposition of rest in all of Scripture, whether Old Testament or New. Hebrews 4, verses 3 through 10 reads like this. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. This is God speaking of Israel. They will not enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in the passage, he says, they will never enter my rest since it remains for some to enter in it those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he specifies a certain day, today, speaking through David after such a long time as previously stated. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, he's quoting Psalm 95 and he's saying, David looks at all of the people and he says, you don't have rest. If you harden your hearts, there will be no rest for you. Today, that means, as the book of Hebrews says, literally today, April 9th, 2017, today, do not harden your hearts because he swore you will not enter my rest no matter how many Sabbaths you take off. There is always Sunday. There is always more work to be done. You will never be finished. You are not delivered. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, 
just as God did from his. It is through Christ that you get to truly rest. Lastly, Christ is a sign for us. Just as the blood on the doorposts was a sign not just for God, but for Israel, we too have a sign that can assure us of our place before God, that God will indeed pass over us in judgment. In Romans 8, Paul claims that the present sufferings are not worthy of being compared to the future glory that's going to be revealed. He says, God gave us his spirit to demonstrate to us, to intercede for us with groanings that we can't even understand, that we might know that the future glory is not even worth comparing to our present sufferings. And he goes on to talk about the fact that those who God predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he justified, and those who he justified, he will glorify. And the question becomes, how can we know these things? How can we know that God is going to do what he said he would do? How do we know that Jesus Christ is enough for us? What is a sign from heaven that we can understand these things by? So Paul says this, how do we know that our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed? How do we know that the ones whom he predestined, he will also glorify in the end? He says this in verse 31 of chapter 8. What are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who, who will be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Listen, so if my kid... Isaac primarily, asked me for a Lego Death Star, okay? It would cost me $500, which is totally, I can't say it's not worth it, but it, it's pushing it, right? Like, so it'd be this really cool Lego Death Star, right? $500. So I go down to the store, I buy them, I don't go down to the store, I buy it from Amazon in two days, it shows up at my door. And we put it together, and we're doing this, and I tell him, this is super expensive. You've got to be super careful. We can't lose anybody. I'm making a big deal about how much this meant for me to do this kind thing for him. If he turned to me and then said, this is nice, but I, I'm really hungry. Could I have some food? If I'm going to spend $500 to buy him a toy, I'm going to feed my son lunch. None of you, parents, when your son asks you for an egg, do you give him a scorpion? And you being evil, well, God is good. If God is good, how much more will he give you better things? God has given his son. Will he not give you everything else with it? If God is for us, who will be against us? Paul goes on in verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Listen, when I'm home alone with my kids... There is no playing dad off against mom, right? They have nowhere to appeal to. There's no higher authority because mom's not around. So they, they can come to me and they can say, can we do this? And I say, no. And they look around, they're like, oh man, he must probably mean it. I can't even, I have got no appeal. There's no higher court. There's no higher authority. He says, God is the one who justifies. God has declared you innocent. Who is Satan going to appeal to? Who is anyone going to appeal to? There is no higher authority. If it's been declared, it's been declared. Finally, in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Will God, this is, this is the nut of it here, will God condemn you? Can you still be condemned? It, it will, will God change his mind? Will this whole facade fail? 
Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is the right hand of God and intercedes for us. That is your sign. The Passover lamb has spilled his blood. And more than that, God rectified him from the grave. He justified him from the grave. He resurrected him from the grave to say, this is the sign that I will forgive you for your sins. Christ has paid all of it for you. All of it. He is your Passover lamb. Let us then dwell this week especially on the awesome love and power of God work through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Passover Lamb. That what the Passover provided was real, but it was only a faint hint of the fullness that Christ brings to his people. It hinted at a deliverance that only the death of Christ could fully provide. It reminds us of comfort that can be found only outside of the world by forsaking the world for the good name of Jesus Christ. By his blood we are made anew. We have true rest in him and we are assured above all things that we escape the wrath of God through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian already, this is cause of great rejoicing for you. This week of all weeks, our God has saved us. Not just from the world, not just from the slavery of sin, not just from the ineptitude of every false belief out there, but he has saved us from himself. If you do not know the Lord today, do not harden your hearts. This is for you today. It is not for tomorrow. It is not for next week. It is not so that you can continue to eat the leaven of the world and thinking that you were going to be okay because you don't know when that Passover is coming. You don't know when the judgment's going to hit your door. The world will never give you the rest, the comfort that you long for. It will never give you the assurance of what is about to come the way Jesus Christ and his resurrection has. All good things are available to you in him. He is God's yes and amen to all of his promises to lavish on you glories and riches that you cannot fathom, even if it means that you are stuck eating leaven, unleavened bread here in this world. There is a good land coming to you. Judgment is coming. A dark day. A day of wrath, a day of anger, a vicious fury and a setting of rights to the world. Friends, run and hide in Christ. For in him, you have everything that you will ever need. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. Let's pray. Father God, you are good to us, that you have provided for us a sacrifice that frees us from our sin, it frees us from your wrath, it frees us from hell and allows us not a freedom just from consequences, but a freedom from the things that enslave us here that we might live holy and righteous lives for you, not simply, not simply because it is duty, but because it's good for us. All of these things that you provide for us are good for us. Thank you, God, for Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Thank you that he has provided himself as a ransom for many. 
this week of all weeks, let us praise him and thank him for the good work of a broken body and spilled blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.